your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 11. If your children are wanting to go to our kids' church, uh, the fellowship hall is on this end um, on the main floor. You're welcome to do that. If not, Daniel chapter 11. If you're using uh, the Bibles in the pews because you needed a Bible and maybe you don't know how to navigate your way around, Daniel chapter 11 begins on page 748 of that Bible. I will make uh, one more announcement. Uh, This month, August, is a month that we remind ourselves each year of the importance of showing hospitality to one another. And so we just call it, for the sake of calling it something, our 1 Peter 4.9 project. 1 Peter 4.9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, It was good even yesterday to see uh, pictures on Facebook uh, of folks getting together and, uh, and, and, and being renewed in this sense of hospitality. The one thing I will add to that, once I figure out this microphone, once I, one thing I'll add to that is there is, there is a, a section of our congregation that even if you were to remember and to invite them into your home, they probably couldn't come. And those are our shut-ins. And in the midst of wanting to show hospitality, I would urge you, don't forget about those who can't come over. Maybe you ought to make time this month to write cards and make phone calls and make visits to go. And maybe you look at that list and you say, well, I don't, I don't know these people very well. Well, that's the point of hospitality altogether, isn't it? It's just you going and making strangers into friends at their home instead of yours and friends into family. So, I would encourage you to do that. If you, if you need a full list of who those folks are, you can contact the church office. We'd be glad uh, to get it to you. Daniel chapter 11, <clears throat> I am going to read uh, verses 2, all, start at verse 2 and go all the way through the end of the chapter. So if, if there is a seat belt in your pew, you should put it on because we're going to go all the way through. This is what the Spirit says. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong enough, strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven." But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of, the, one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. And some years, and after some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude, greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. 
In those times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give, his, give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods." He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be in the, at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women, he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. The god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price." At the end of the time, the king of the south shall attack, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. 
He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Let's pray together. Oh God, we come before you asking now that as we open your word and seek to understand it, that you would be our teacher, that by your spirit we would see what you are saying, that you would open our ears and our minds and our hearts to understand and love and believe all that you're saying here. We pray you would keep our eyes focused on the main thing, that you would not let us be distracted, but that we would see your truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many times um, when you're reading your Bible... Uh, the, <clears throat> the implications of what you're reading are just right there on the surface, aren't they? You, you read Philippians 4 about, about not being anxious but praying, and, and you realize you need to be praying. Uh, you, you read Romans 12 about not returning evil for evil, and you realize you need to change your attitude toward that person who hurt you. You read something like Matthew 6, where we're to forgive others, or Matthew 18, because we're to forgive others because we've been forgiven, and you realize you can't hold that grudge. I mean, there are times when you're reading your Bible, and the meaning, and the implications, and the way you ought to live in light of that. It's just right there on the surface, isn't it? And then there's Daniel chapter 11. A chapter that can make your head spin. You can easily get lost in the details trying to keep track of who's who and what's what and what's happening now. One scholar said about this chapter that it really wasn't a chapter that anyone should attempt to preach. That really it was better for a lecture in a classroom than a sermon in a pulpit. Well, after today, you may agree with him. <laughs> but I am still going to give it a shot. Now, just as a reminder, uh, Daniel 10 to 12 is one big unit. And last week we looked at chapter 10, the introduction... You know, Daniel is mourning and praying and fasting, and in response, God sends a heavenly messenger to deliver this prophecy that we just read, a prophecy of future events, a prophecy of chaotic events. But this kind of chaos isn't limited to uh, this prophecy. It's not limited to the, the centuries after Daniel. This kind of chaos runs all throughout history. In fact, you might say that history is a kind of record of chaos and conflict. Uh, in, in, in Jane Austen's novel, uh, Northanger Abbey, the, the, the heroine is 17-year-old Catherine Moreland, and she complains about reading history. This is what she says. She says, I read a little as a duty, but it tells me nothing that does not either vex or weary me. The quarrels of popes and kings with wars or pestilences, it is very tiresome. Well, fair enough. But the longer that I have meditated on and studied this chapter to prepare for this morning, the less I'm convinced that it's just giving us history ahead of time. And I'm even less convinced that it's meant to be a prophetic 
connect the dots puzzle. You know, this king is that one and that king is this one. Now, we can do that because we're looking back on it. But I want to remind you, we're not the first people who read Daniel chapter 11. Think about that first audience. Those post-exiled Jews, what is the message for them? They don't have the luxury of looking back. They read of kings and battles and the rest, and they can't put the pieces together. So what's the message for them? Well, that's an important place to start because the message to them shapes the message to us. They're not two different messages, you understand. We may have more fullness now, but the message is the same. And I believe it's this, that God is sovereign over the chaotic kingdoms of man. So stand firm. God is sovereign over the chaotic kingdoms of man. So stand firm. If you didn't notice, a great deal of this chapter deals with the fact that the kingdoms of man are chaotic. The kingdoms of man are chaotic. I want to be upfront with you. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time identifying these kings for you with names and dates and stories. It is fascinating, and the accuracy of this prophecy, when you look at the historical record, is astounding. And because I want you to see it, I've created this sheet of paper. Now, if you're a member, one of these is in your box. And if you're not, I've got them. You're welcome to have one afterwards. But what it is, is it's a list of verses that have these things unfolding in chapter 11 with corresponding historical fulfillment. But I'm not going down that rabbit hole. I'm going to focus on the big picture, and let me explain why by having a picture put up on the screen here. Now, this is the only way I could think to get Lord of the Rings into this morning's sermon. <laughs> Although I'm sure if I thought about it more, I could do more. But this actually isn't simply a picture. It's a mosaic. It's a mosaic made up of lots and lots of little pictures. Now, you could zoom in on those little pictures. You could look at what every single little picture is. You could spend, we could spend all our time zooming in on all of the Lord of the Rings characters that are in there. But the point of a, of a mosaic is for all of the little pictures to come together and give you one big picture. And that is how I see Daniel chapter 11. So I'm not going to zoom in on very many little pictures. We're going to see if we can't get our hands around the big picture. And part of that picture is that the kingdoms of man are chaotic. Now, you may have even felt a bit of that chaos as we read, didn't you? Was there a little bit of smoke coming out your ears? You're like, who is this king? Where did that king come from? What's he doing? Why is he giving his daughter to him? I don't know what's going on here. Well, join the club. Uh, but what I want to do is walk you through this. I want to just wade through the chaos just a bit with you, more at like a 30,000-foot level than a ground level. So verse 2 starts, Daniel, remember, is in the kingdom that's being ruled by Persia, and verse 2 starts with the future uh, power of what, what is the future of Persia. After Cyrus, there are going to be a few more kings. And then a fourth king who is very rich is going to come along, and essentially he's going to pick a fight with Greece. He's going to end up losing, though it's not here in the text. It's in the history record. And then verse 3, then will arise Greece. Now that then covers a long time. We're over 100 years into the future there. But Greece arises as a world power, and Alexander the Great is at the helm. He's the mighty king there in verse 3. We saw that back in chapter 8. But he dies, and the Greek empire is divided in four. And two of those portions come to the forefront for the remainder of the chapter. We know them as the kings of the south and the north, the south being Egypt, the north being Syria. And the prophecy focuses from verse 5 to verse 20 on these kings of the north and the south going back and forth, this kind of succession of prideful, power-hungry 
kings, and they're constantly at war with one another. So that from verse 5 to 14, Egypt is essentially dominant. And then in verse 15, the tables turn, and Syria becomes dominant. It's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, only on a national level. But in this section, to summarize, we see decades of anger, murder, invasions, plunder, failed alliances, betrayal, lies, bribery, and assassinations. Oh, and war. It is chaos. And the Jews are caught right in the middle. Literally, geographically, they're in the middle. That's what makes the king of the north the king of the north. And the king of the south, the king of the south. North and south in relation to what? In relation to Israel. Because the center point, the focal of God's purposes and God's prophecy and God's revelation is His people. Now, we only see the Jews appear a couple of times here in verses 5 to 20. In verse 14, some of them take up arms and join the fighting. And then we see in verse 16 that the destructive king of Syria is standing in the glorious land, which is uh, language to speak of Israel. But when we get to verse 21, the chaos becomes more focused. Israel comes more into focus. And time actually slows down. So from verses 2 to 20, we've covered about 350 years of, of time. And 21 to 35, we only cover about a dozen years. And there's no succession of leaders, only one. Verse 21 calls him a contemptible person. He weasels his way into power even though he has no right to the throne. And Israel essentially becomes this king's punching bag, his whipping boy. There's this new, uh, well, it's newer, it's not brand new, this newer phenomenon in kind of self-help and therapy uh, called wrecking rooms. There are these places you can go and pay money to destroy things, destroy laptops and lamps and furniture and all kinds of things with a baseball hat or sledgehammer or something, all in the name of letting off a little steam or dealing with your stress. Now, if we were going to take time, we'd take time to say, let me just summarize what we'd take time to say. This is not the biblical way to deal with your anxiety or with your anger. It's only a bit more destructive than punching your pillow when you were a kid. But I say that to say Israel became this contemptible king's wrecking room. Anytime he needed to let off a little steam... He made a stop in Israel, and he picked up his sledgehammer, and he went to work. He kills the prince of the covenant in verse 22, most likely a reference to the high priest. He flatters his way into the hearts of the Jews who violate the covenant. His heart, according to verse 28, is set against them, and and. and he, he goes to battle with Egypt and he wins. And then so he decides he's going to go again, but things don't go as he wants. Look at verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim or of Cyprus, depending on your translation, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. In other words... This, this man ran up against forces he couldn't possibly handle. What's happened, actually, is that Egypt has gotten Rome on her side. And uh, so the two together kind of say, uh, you know, Rome essentially says, uh, you mess with Egypt, you mess with me, right? I mean, the big brother is the only one who's allowed to pick on the little brother. And so you just, the big brother says, you mess with little brother, you mess with me. And that's what Rome is. Rome is the big brother coming in here and going to make sure that this guy gets turned back. Well, what happens when the bully gets turned back? He goes and finds someone he can pick on. And that's what happens here. He goes to Israel. 
And look what he does, verse 31, "...forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate." He's going to outlaw worship, and he's going to kill anyone who, don't, who doesn't play by his rules. Now, if the language of verse 31 sounds familiar, take away the regular burnt offering, abomination that makes desolate. Well, that's good. That means you've been listening because we've met this man before. Look back in chapter 8. Just turn a page backwards. There, he's not called a contemptible person. There, he's called a little horn. Verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And when an angel asks how long this is going to happen, look at verse 13, look at the language. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? Now, this is one name I'll give you because we saw him back in chapter 8, and he's incredibly important in the history of the Jews. This is Antiochus IV. You remember us talking about him? He outlaws circumcision. He outlaws observing the Sabbath. He outlaws sacrifice, unless you're going to sacrifice to Zeus, whose statue he sets up in the temple. He outlaws all. He basically wants to strip Israel's religious identity from it. But the text goes on. Verse 36. But something odd happens here. There's no real transitional statement here. But this doesn't quite add up. Because there are some things that are like Antiochus, that contemptible person, but then there are things that are not like him. Like he doesn't, Antiochus never uh, doesn't have, uh, never denies the gods of his fathers, as verse 37 will say. He never worships another god, as verse 38 says. He never has the kind of control over Egypt that verses 42 and 43 say. And Antiochus doesn't die in Israel, like verse 45 says. He dies in Persia. Well, what's going on here? If this isn't him, who is it? Well, one of the things that often happens in biblical prophecy is that you're looking down a mountain range at two different peaks. And the peaks, when you look at them, they look very close together. But if you actually go to those mountains, you'll find there are miles and miles and miles and miles between one peak and the other. And that's what's happening here. We're looking down the line at Antiochus, and all of a sudden out from behind him looks like one who's kind of like him but not like him. And actually what's happened is that we've looked well into the distant future to the great chaos creator himself, to the, to the one that Antiochus foreshadows, to the Antichrist. Now, the New Testament tells us that there is a spirit of Antichrist in the world, Antichrist against Christ, and there are many who embody that spirit, but that one day there is one who will come who will be the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, if you will, the final king of the north. He has no regard for God, no regard for mankind. All he wants is war. Look at verse 38. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. He rewards those, verse 39, who side with him. He loads them with honor. And he punishes those who won't. He's going to take aim at the people of God, according to verse 41. His kingdom is going to expand far and wide. Look at verse 43. He shall become rulers. Oh, sorry, verse 42. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy 
and devote many to destruction. Essentially what you have going through chapter 11 is chaos, 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 chaos. Capital C, capital H, capital A, capital O, capital S. If that's not how you spell chaos, it is now. Chaos. That's what you see from the beginning of this chapter to the end. The kingdoms of man are chaotic. They're chaotic because they're unstable, but they're also chaotic in the sense that they create chaos. Now, you may have been thinking all along so far, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with the year 2021? Well, one thing that should come immediately clear is that the kingdoms of man in our world are not to be trusted with your heart and soul and mind and strength. Because leaders come and leaders go. And they bring varying levels and different types of chaos with them. Our eyes should not be set to the kingdoms of man. Our heart should not set its hope in the kingdoms of man. And yet, do you know that if you read newspaper articles and Twitter tweets and Facebook posts, it would seem as if the kingdoms of man are our hope. If only this one could stay. If only this one would go. If only we'd control this or that with the people that I like. If only we could get rid of those people I don't like. As if there is some subset of human beings who can rule without chaos. As if there is some kind of perfect governmental structure in which we can finally hope and trust. We can finally rest easy. We can finally lay back because that guy's gone and this guy's here. But you know, it's actually more personal than that. Because do you know what you and I tend to do? We tend to build our own kingdoms. We tend to want every arena of our life to bow to our will and serve our purposes. And we want our kingdoms, even if it comes at the expense of my spouse, even if it comes at the expense of my children, even if it comes at the expense of my friendships, even if it comes at the expense of my work colleagues, I will have my kingdom come and my will be done. But friends, this way of living, just like this way of ruling the nations, is chaotic. It's unstable and it only creates chaos for you and for those that you trample. The, the, the only kingdom that lasts, the only kingdom that endures, the only kingdom that gives peace instead of chaos is the kingdom of God that's been inaugurated in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only kingdom that you can count on. Jesus comes and He preaches the kingdom of God, and some of that we'll start looking at here in a few weeks when we begin looking at the Sermon on the Mount. But He comes and He preaches the kingdom of God, and then He signs and seals the covenant of the kingdom in His own blood on the cross. You see, there Jesus is engulfed in the chaos of our sin. And He pays our debt so that all who believe in Him have peace, peace with God, peace in the midst of the chaos of this life, and peace forever. And friend, if you don't know that peace, if you, have not, if you don't have peace with God because you have not come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do that today. 
I would urge you to not look to the things in the world to satisfy your heart and satisfy your soul and give you peace because there's no election after which you're going to say, finally, I can be at peace the rest of my life. There's no promotion after which you're going to say, finally, I can have some peace for the rest of my life. There's no moment of transition in your life. Retirement won't finally bring, oh, finally, peace for the rest of my life. Ah, we're empty nesters now. Peace for the rest of my life. It won't work, Michael. No, it doesn't, because sin is still in you, and sin is still in every one of us, and the chaos of the world will come against it. Don't look to anything in this life to give you peace, because it won't last, and it won't be good enough. It won't be good enough. You'll be like a man drinking salt water, thinking it's going to quench your thirst, and the only thing it does is make you thirstier. The kingdoms of this world are chaotic. That's why Jesus taught us to seek first His kingdom, to pray and say to God, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. The kingdoms of man are chaotic. But secondly, God is sovereign. Now, if you don't know that word, sovereign means that God has absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything, that God rules and reigns over the affairs of man, that He governs the governments, that nothing is out of His reach, that nothing escapes His knowledge, that nothing prevents His purposes. He is sovereign, and His sovereignty runs right through this chapter. It may not be obvious to you, and actually, if you look carefully, God is not said directly to do anything in this chapter, but He's there, quietly reigning. He's sovereign over world rulers in this chapter. Look at verse 4. As soon as He has arisen, this King of Greece, His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. And look how it describes it at the last phrase. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. That's interesting language. And actually, it's language that's found elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's language that's used primarily of God in his activity, especially in judgment. Jeremiah 12 says, If any nation will not listen then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it. And that same kind of language in Jeremiah 12 is used a number of times, three or four times in one paragraph. Speaking about the rulers of the world, Isaiah 40 says, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them and they wither. You see, God is behind the changing of power. God is behind the downfall of Persia and the rise of Greece, the rise of Syria, the rise of Egypt, and all throughout human history. It's not just… God isn't just behind when my guy wins and their guy loses. God is behind it all. No one takes a single seat in a single office apart from His sovereign hand. Also, He's sovereign over warfare. Look at verse 11. The king of the south moved will rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he, the king of the north, shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into the king of the south's hand. All right? So, Egypt attacks and Syria amasses this huge force to fight against them. 
But those forces are given into the king of Egypt's hand. Now, who's doing the giving here? That's a good question to ask. Because the king of Syria isn't going, you know what, you can just have them. No, God is doing the giving here. This is the language used in the Old Testament for God giving one army into another's hand. As we see in Joshua chapter 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. He's sovereign over world rulers. He's sovereign over warfare. He's sovereign over time. You see time mentioned a number of places, and then there's this little phrase, the time appointed or the appointed time. Look at verse 27. They shall speak, this is the middle of the verse, they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Verse 29, at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south. Verse 35, they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Well, who appoints such a time? Who's behind it all? Who commands armies to rise and armies to fall? Who is it that gives one nation power and takes it from another? Whose schedule is history running on? God's. We already saw that in Daniel chapter 2. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And friends, He's even sovereign over evil. Evil cannot take a single step apart from the sovereign permission of God. Antiochus IV will not last a second longer on the world stage than God allows. We saw that back in chapter 8 in verse 25 when it says, He shall be broken, but by no human hand. And the same is true of the Antichrist, the Antichrist, the chaotic one when he comes. Verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. It's more explicit when you get to the New Testament and you read in a place like 2 Thessalonians 2, the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. In the chaos, in the evil, in the suffering, friends, God hasn't lost control. He hasn't lost sight of His people. His purposes haven't been pushed off course. He's sovereign. And because He is sovereign over the chaotic kingdoms of the world, of man, we must stand firm. That's the last thing to see. Stand firm. I'm going to read verses 32 to 35. He, Antiochus, this contemptible person, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time." You see, in the midst of what's happening on the world stage, in the midst of all the chaos and the words about sovereignty, here's this little band of believers. Here's this remnant, this group who know their God. They haven't been bought by the government as others have. They haven't been seduced by promises of reward as others have. They haven't turned their back on God or violated the covenant as others have. They're faithful. They know their God. They stand firm and take action. Yes, they suffer. You heard that, right? Verse 33, they stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, but they won't compromise the faith. They won't move an inch. 
They stand firm. They trust the God who's sovereign. They walk by faith. They don't determine their steps based on what they see in the world around them. And as they stand firm in suffering, God doesn't abandon them. He works out His purposes for them. That's what He says in verse 35. He says they're going to be refined and purified and made white. Now imagine yourself in a synagogue after the exile and the Jews read Daniel 11, okay? What do you think would stir up in them? What is the longing that this chapter ought to prompt? Better question, what do you think God is trying to stir up in the Jews through this chapter? You know what it's not? Can I tell you what God's not trying to do here? He's not trying to stir up their desire to figure it all out. It's not a puzzle to work. God doesn't want the the exiles reading Daniel 11 with their local newspaper in their hand, trying to figure out the details, trying to connect headlines to verses, trying to develop charts and graphs. No, God's goal is more important. He's aiming to stir the heart. When they see these two groups, there's a group that violates the covenant and is in league with this contemptible person, and then there's this group that suffer, but they stand firm. Do you know what they ought to want? To stand firm, to not violate the covenant, to not turn their back on God, to not compromise, to not give in. To not be moved by anything that happens. They may be moved to prison. They may be moved to get hanged. They may be moved to be beheaded. But they will not be moved from their faith. That's what they should want. Because when the day comes, friends, it won't matter if they've got it all figured out. It won't matter if they know who all the kings are. It won't matter hundreds of years from now if somebody picks up their journal and says, oh, this person really had it predicted. The question will be, did they endure to the end? Did they stay faithful under fire? And as I believe that was what the Jews were to take, I believe that's what we are to take. Ahead of them was Antiochus. Ahead of us is Antichrist. And even now, as many Antichrists come and the spirit of Antichrist saturates our world and chaos abounds, political chaos, economic chaos, moral chaos, the God who was sovereign in Daniel 11 is sovereign today. Sovereign over world rulers today. Sovereign over conflicts today. Sovereignly changing times and seasons today. Sovereign even over evil today. So we can trust Him. We can walk by faith and not by what we see in the world. And dear ones, no matter what author or what prophecy conference speaker or what preacher wants to nail down the times and the events because they've got Daniel 11 and Revelation in one, and and the book of Revelation in one hand and the newspaper in the other, please know this. No matter what they say, that's not the point. The point isn't to be Sherlock Holmes and predict God's next move. The point is to stand firm. You go this afternoon and you read Revelation 13 and 14, and in the midst of the chaos that's unfolding, do you know what you find interrupts the process twice? Revelation 13, 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints Chapter 14, verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. In the midst of all the chaos, God says, persevere. That's the point. Stand firm. So then knowing the end and knowing the chaos and knowing that God is sovereign, dear Christian, persevere. Trust the Lord. Stand firm in the face of opposition. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't be a coward. Stand. Be refined. Be purified. Be made white by the fiery trials that we will face. It's a great line toward the end of 
1 Corinthians 16. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Why? Well, Mark 13 tells us, because you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. God is sovereign over the chaotic kingdoms of man. So stand firm. Let's pray. Oh God, how we want to be among those who stand firm. How we need your grace so that we will stand firm. We do not want to be of those who turn their back on you, who violate the covenant, who are unfaithful, who make shipwreck of their faith, who put their hand to the plow and look back. God, we see the chaos of our world. We see the chaos when we try to make kingdoms in our own world. And we long for peace. And there is a kind of peace that is not really peace. A kind of peace that is based on circumstances and not on our Savior. We don't want that peace. We want the peace that passes all understanding. We want the peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We long for you to give us joy and hope and peace in believing. And so help us to trust you, our sovereign God, amid the chaos of this world. And give us strength and grace and fortify our backbones to stand. When the world bows... Help us to stand. When some in the church bow, help us to stand. For the sake of the one who stood in our place. For the sake of the one who stands and intercedes for us. For the sake and glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.